This is Blastle. I'm Lucy Dearlove. And I'm Katie Callan. This is episode two, Skedden. They were so beautiful and that really made me understand why so many people had written and sung and it did feel like a really magical experience to see that kind of, you know, waterfall of silver. Oh, the heron boys, the heron boys. <laughs> Well, the herring section of the Manx English Dictionary is, you know, massive because of all the kind of herring-related vocabulary. For a long time, you know, the herring industry was so economically important, but and herring as a food was just so vital. In the end, it was Scaven the Heron, the little silver fella who was made king of the sea. Blastel is a podcast series by Lekker about food and folklore on the Isle of Man. Blastel is the Manx Gaelic word for tasty, so the Isle of Man version of lekker. In collaboration with Culture Vannin, the Manx Heritage Foundation, over three episodes we're digging into three of the most iconic Manx foods and finding out about the folk stories, songs and traditions that surround them. This is the second episode in the series, and it's all about the King of the Sea. Skedden. When we were on the island recording, I feel like we were there a week and a large proportion of that time was spent either in or near the sea. And that's despite the fact that, I mean, we were there this time last year. It was early November. It's the Irish Sea. So it's pretty cold at the best of times, but like it's pretty chilly this time of year. It's very, very bracing. But... I mean, I couldn't get enough of it even the short time I was there. And I feel like, you know, it seems like your friends on the island are really into sea swimming. Like there's a big kind of culture of it. Do you think that people on the Isle of Man have a kind of special relationship with the sea? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's hard not to. I think you are surrounded by it. I don't think you are ever further than, what, 10 minutes from the sea, wherever you are on the island. There's only one parish that is landlocked um, around. It's right in the middle. That's where my dad grew up on a farm called the Nab. And um, that's probably why he personally never goes see something with me. Um, <laughs> but I think everyone's into it, even if they don't want to like physically get into it. My friends and I go see something a lot. It's one of my favorite parts about home and one of the things I miss the most. It is very cold. Um, but that's kind of part of it. And I love when you get in and the waves are so tall that maybe when the waves are out, you're up to your knees. But when a wave comes in, you get sort of blasted in the face. It's it's very, uh, (laughs) makes you feel alive. But aside from the actual getting in the sea, People love to stare out wistfully at it, walk along it, and eat the things that live in it. There's so many connections to the sea, and fishing in particular is so central to Manx culture and, historically, the Manx economy. And there's one fish in particular who has shaped both the historic food and folklore of the Isle of Man. Um, from superstitions around what you should and shouldn't do with its bones, to tourism today, the herring... Um, or as it's known in Manx, Skedden or Skadden. 
is uh, so tightly tied together with Manx history to the extent that in Manx folklore it's considered the king of the sea. sit up on top, you get all blustered about. So if we're sat here on the breakwater, behind me is the Irish Sea, facing towards Ireland. Behind you is Peel Harbour and the rest of Peel. To our, well, to my right, to your left, Peel Castle. Katie brought me to the breakwater in Peel to eat a local speciality from the kiosk there. Um, should probably mention at this point that Katie is actually vegetarian, so... Did not order the local speciality. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just Selfie here to enable you. <laughs> you got your kipper back. Oh my god, I'm excited. Look at that view. Is this on right? Is that fine? Hold up. You happy with that? Get your kippery fingers all over my microphone. <laughs> Sorry. The Alaman is reliant and has been historically on fishing to get that sweet, sweet cash. And herring is what's around here. And, you know, Manxmen are good at catching herring and they're very good at smoking it and turning it into kippers. Very good. Um, but I don't really know much about the ins and outs of the actual process. And, and to be honest, the history, I just know that herrings are like dead important. So we'll go and see Auntie Nikki later on. That's why we're here. That's why we're here, to see Auntie Nikki. <laughs> And to find out. I mean, I'm here to eat some really good Max food. I'm here to give you, I'm here to feed you essentially. Yeah. I'm the feeder of this operation. And then I'm also just going around and asking people that I've known all my life questions I've never asked them before because I didn't th really think about it. But mm. now I am. Sort of just like things that you don't. You take for granted. Yeah, you don't really think about it. You're like, oh yeah, kippers, obviously. But yeah. Enjoy that kebab. How is it? It's so good. I had one from the van last time, but that was better. It was like less overly salty, mm -hmm. buttery. Mm -hmm. Do you understand why I've brought you behind Field Castle to have a kebab? I mean, I think anyone getting this kebab would understand why they were here. <laughs> it's very good because the kebab is one of the most folklory foods there is on the island. You know, the humble kipper, I've never really given it the respect it deserves, I feel like. I don't think anyone realises who the kipper truly is. The Lil Silverfella is one of his other names. Herring. He's the king of the sea. There is a whole, there is a, there is a, a whole, there's a backstory to why the herring is the king of the sea. Because all the fish sort of gathered together. They had a council they had to decide who was going to be the king of the sea. I don't know why they couldn't have just stayed as a sort of, like, commune. <laughs> why they had to decide to bring monarchy into it at all. But they did, and uh, so they all gathered together to decide who, who it was going to be, and they all sort of made their case. 
and it ended up being the herring. Up with the log and the terran before the wind and tide. The gunners plunge, the gulls keep watch, the herring shore was wide. Country head and yarble point will soon be left behind. A flashing bay southwest by west, our merry friends will find. The herring boys, the herring boys, the herring boys for me. Red or kipper fresh or pickled dough, the herring's the king of the sea. If you listen to the first episode of Lastall, all about moots, then you'll be familiar with Annie Kizik, who told us all about some of the folk traditions connected to Hopchine, some of which have been collected by Dr John Clegg. When we asked Annie about herring, she told us about some other key figures who've preserved Manx folklore and customs. But first, some homegrown and pressed apple juice. Would you like some of this apple juice? I've been promising oh, yes, you. Oh, yes, I'd love some <laughs> apple juice. Yeah. Right, this is the moment of truth when you can find out whether it's a, a sweet it? one or a sour one or a middle one. It's such a beautiful colour. Thank you. It is rather nice. hope it's okay. I'm going to put it there for Sophia Morrison was just a wonderful person, <laughs> a pioneer, and a female pioneer. She was a woman from the west of the island, and she was perhaps fortunate in being relatively from a relatively well-off family, so she had leisure to study things. She studied music, she studied languages. She was a collector of all sorts of things of interest, at least to me and many other people. She was a collector of song, she was a collector of traditions and she was a collector of fairy tales and stories. Sophia Morrison's book of Manx fairy tales is to be found on the shelves of many Manx people, including my own. Uh, I grew up being read the stories often inducing nightmares but I stole that book of fairy tales from my parents' house and took it to Annie's for this. She sort of just gave her life to trying to open up perhaps to Manx people as much as the rest of the world, the culture that they had. The Little Book of Manx Fairy Tales here, which contains many of the stories she herself has recorded, it's been reproduced on and off over the, oh, I suppose, over the hundred years. One of the tales that didn't give me nightmares as a child uh, was about herring. Right. Shall I start? The herring became king of the sea. The old fishermen of the island have it to say that years and years ago the fish met to choose themselves a king, for they had no deemster to tell them what was right. Likely enough their meeting place was off the shoulder south of the calf. They all came looking their best. There was Captain Jug, the red gurnet, in his fine crimson coat. Grey horse, the shark, big and cruel. The bollen in his brightest colours. Dirty Peggy, the cuttlefish, putting her nicest face on herself. Havoc, the haddock, trying to rub out the black spots the devil burnt on him when he took hold of him with his finger and thumb and all the rest. Each one thought he might be chosen. The fish had a strong notion to make Bratgorum, the mackerel, king. He knew that and he went and put beautiful lines and stripes on himself pink and green and gold and all the colours of the sea and sky. Then he was thinking diamonds of himself. But when he came, he looked that grand that they didn't know him. So they said that he was artificial and would have nothing to do with him. And in the end, it was Scaven the Heron, the little silver fella who was made king of the sea. 
When it was all over, up came the fluke, too late to give his vote, and they all called out, You've missed the tide, me beauty! It seems that he'd be so busy tallivating himself up, touching himself up red in places that he forgot how time went. When he found that the heron had been chosen, he twisted up his mouth on one side and says he, And what am I going to be then? Take that, says Scarrod the skate, and he ups with his tail and gives a fluke a slap on his mouth that knocked his mouth crooked on him. And so it has been ever since. And maybe it's because the hen is the king of the sea that he has so much honour among men. Even the deemsters, when they take their oath, say, I will execute justice as indifferently as the heron's backbone doth lie in the midst of the fish. And the Manx people will not burn the heron's bones in the fire in case the heron should feel it. It is to remember, too, that the best heron in the world are caught in this place off the shoulder, where the fish held their big meat, and that is because it is not very far from Manan's enchanted island. So the Deemsters are sort of the high judges on the island and they still, to this day, swear on the herring's backbone in their oath. I love this detail. I don't know if there's any other countries in the world that can claim they swear on a herring's backbone. Maybe they should think about it. Maybe they should. In the story, there's a bit about how, like, the best place to fish them, like, the most delicious ones are the ones that swim near Mananan's Isle, which is like a sunk... I don't actually know if it's real or not, but it's like a sort of... Mananan, who's the god of the Isle of Man, this, this sort of sea god who protects us from invaders with his cloak of mist. When St. Patrick came to the island, as in the St. Patrick, he, like, shooed Mananan away, and Mananan and his followers went and lived on the Mananan's Isle under the sea. Mananin is such a presence, it just in like in terms of like you've got the house of Mananin, the ferry that we got from Liverpool was called Mananin. Like he's a famous man. He's a famous godman. He's top dog on this island. Mm. <laughs> Mananin, or Mananin McClear to give him his full name, is the Isle of Man's god, basically. Uh, the island's named after him. And he was, according to folklore, the first ruler of the island. He was a sort of wizard who looked after us. And uh, he also features in other Celtic mythology and folklore. He sort of pops up in Irish and Scottish ones as well. And it makes sense that the museum in Peel, which covers the island's Celtic, Viking and maritime history, is called the House of Mananin. Like, that's a logical a logical name for it, given how important he was and how important he is in the kind of history of the island. The museum is just along from Peel Harbour, about five minutes' walk from the breakwater, where I had my lovely kipper bap. The folktale that we heard Annie read might say that the best herring are to be caught near the Calf of Man. That's where Mananin's enchanted isle is supposed to lie. But it's Peel, which was historically one of the main centres of herring fishing. There are still fishing boats in Peel Harbour and these days they're going out to catch things like queenies, the little scallops that are native to the sea there. 
But over the past few hundred years, the harbour was much more likely to be full of boats bringing in shimmering nets full of herring to the herring girls who waited on shore. Even before the kipper became commonplace, pridders and herring, which was potatoes and herring eaten with butter and raw onion, was the Manx national dish. We'll go back to Spit Corner and then we'll go down the harbour. Walking down past Peel Harbour, we headed towards the house in Manamin to meet Katie's auntie Nikki, who's worked there for years, so we could hear more about the rich history of herring fishing on the island. Oh, we can cut behind the, um, the sailing club. Little shortcut. Entry. That's the entry house in Manamin. Hello, you are right? Hiya. Good to see you. Hello. Did you meet Lucy? Like, oh, you did at the bar. I think we met briefly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Lucy, Nikki, Nikki, Lucy. The house of Mananin is kind of a bit more experiential, I guess, than your maybe traditional museum full of artifacts. They've got kind of mannequins in different sets to really like give you a sense of what life was like. And there's a great soundscape there too. They've used actors and music to make you really feel like it's the real deal, like you're really in it. And you're going to kind of hear that in the background as we're talking. My personal favourite room at the House of Mananin is the Celtic roundhouse in which a granddad is telling his granddaughter one of the most terrifying stories you've ever heard in order to help her go back to sleep after a nightmare. Um, and surprisingly, it does it does work. So he obviously had something. He beckoned the spirits in and told them to warm themselves by the flickering fire. And they passed by Winder. And she was very safe. Yeah, there's a real a real range of like sections, little cross sections of people's lives that you witness. And there's also a few different rooms dedicated specifically to Herring and the Museum, which gives you a sense of kind of, I guess, how significant it is in Manx history. One of the rooms looks exactly like a traditional smokehouse. So you've got kippers hanging up around a kind of smoking fire. And another room really kind of gives you a sense of how busy and bustling the harbour itself would have been yeah. in the 19th century. So you're sort of looking down the forest of masts to sort of give you an idea of how sort of busy it was at the height of the, the fishing. You could actually apparently walk along right across the harbour on the boats alone. There's a lot going on, isn't there? There's a lot of different people. A lot of people talking, yeah. If you can think as well, as sort of like even in the sort of late 70s, early 80s, sort of, there were so many boats in, they all had to be stocked up with groceries before they went out fishing. So they were sort of keeping all the grocery shops in Peel, and we sort of had two or three bakeries, there'd be two or three grocery shops, and they'd sort of go and deliver down to the boat. Uh, my mother-in-law was one of the ones that had a grocery shop up in Peel, Market Street at the time. And we, we loved to tell the tale of the time that the, she got this list through and it said 100 rolls. So she, sort of, she ordered, duly ordered the 100 rolls off the bakers and went down to deliver it. And she said, what do I do with all these 100 rolls? And the fisherman would go, what do you mean 100 rolls? Well, you ordered 100 rolls. No, we wanted loo rolls. Oh, no. <laughs> the House of Mananin is a real, like, multi-sensory experience and as well as the soundscape that we talked about and the kind of really, like, physical sort of nature of the sets. They've also tried to recreate what it would have smelt like. Top tip, if you ever want to recreate the smell of the House of Mananin, get a, p- a packet of Lapsang Souchong tea. 
because it's smoky and if you if you get lapsang souchong and just smell that yeah. then you get the house of Manana. another room in the herring section features the figures of two women they're standing with their backs to us they've got kind of waterproof aprons on they've got wellies on and the room is frankly quite bloodstained they, these are herring girls efficiently gutting herring surrounded by blood <laughs> It truly is like a scene from a horror film. It's quite bloodthirsty. The blood is all over them. It's all over the walls. I cannot even stress how much blood. I can't believe that a fish could even produce. I mean, I suppose they, they had quite a lot of fish it's to many get fishes, yeah. It's a lot, a lot of blood. A lot Brutal. of herring blood, yeah. Brutal. Very simply with kippers, what you have is the fish comes in off the boat, comes into the smokehouse, and then the idea is the girls here are splitting and gutting the fish. You're not worried about what happens to the good blood and the guts. It just, you know, you're doing it piecemeal, so you have to be quick and fast. So you uh, gut them, and then they go into a salt, into a brine bath for about a couple of hours. And then from there, they go on to the tenter hooks, which is just around the corner there on the trough. Oh, yeah, over here. And in... Tenter hooks are then taken up and put into the smokehouse. It's then just a very simple process of, again, three or four hours in the smokehouse. It's a dampened down fire, so it's not a hot smoking process. It's a cold smoking process. We use hardwood chippings. Oak is preferable. And it then just slowly cures the fish. There, um, there is a technical term for it but it basically it's a cold smoking process and it only cures the fish it doesn't cook the fish and then basically that's your kipper and so you said the girls this was traditionally women's work it was very much the women's work the men were on the boats uh, and then the girls would be sort of in charge of doing the actual gutting uh, these ones are quite posh because they're indoors the kipper process actually sort of started taking off in about 1870 uh, and then what would happen was from the time, probably sort of late June, early July, is the best time to sort of collect your herring. And they're, they're coming around the coast. So they start down at Kinsale, come up around the Isle of Man, up to Scotland, and then down the East Coast. And the boats would chase them, basically. You'd go down to Kinsale for the start of the season, and you would follow them around down to uh, farm places like that at the end of the season. And you'd have a team of three girls signed to each boat. And you'd start from about the age of 13. And at the age of 13, your job would be to uh, basically pack the fish. Once the other two girls, who were probably about 15 to 17, they're the gutters. So one packer, two gutters. And the idea being your boat you're signed on to, as soon as the boys come into the quayside, you had to empty the hold of that boat. You had to pack gut them and pack them as quick as you can. And they could probably do about a thousand fish in an hour between the three of them. So this sort of area is sort of based 1977. Right. So in, that, in July of that year, Moore's Kippers, which is at the back of us, closed down. And they literally just shut the doors and told everybody not to come in on the Monday. So when we were built in 87, 97, 97, <laughs> Uh, they basically, Max Museum got permission to go in and just take everything out, as was. So that is their actual tea table. So, as if. So this is all from... 1977, yes, from the Kipper House. So all the wellies and everything like that are... 
And then about two years later, somebody bought Moore's Kipper Works and opened it up. On the back of us being here, we were getting the tourists coming down, so he was actually went back to traditional smoking. So oh, you, the hospital and reinvigorated the Reinvigorated <laughs> that area, because we've, we've got Devros and Curtis's, but they're modern kipper yards. Almost every other house in Peel had a smoke yard in the back. And, so uh, people would smoke their own? Literally, you would smoke your own. And it's easy to do, you can, we can do it in a barrel, uh, but easily enough. That's amazing. <laughs> and I, th I think the last example of a smokehouse, unfortunately now, is um, a holiday let that's behind Harry Madrill's, you know, up the street. Uh, go down uh, next to Simpsons there, and you can actually see the, it's called the old smoke yard, and that's the old oh, last remaining example of a, of a kipper house. <laughs> So it's my dad's mum, so my maternal, my paternal grandmother's family who had fished for generations. And um, so her two brothers were still, my great uncles were still fishing when I was growing up. And they, they were crab and lobster fishermen. So they would set traps around the south of the island, so particularly around Port and Bay and then out towards the calf. Dr Fiona Gell is a marine biologist. Uh, she grew up on the Isle of Man mostly and she lives there now, but she's also worked in kind of different marine environments all around the world. So I start the book with my earliest memory being sitting in the bottom of the boat while my dad was rowing and, and rescuing the lobsters from being, because they used to put um, elastic bands in the claws so they wouldn't get you once they'd be caught. Further back, my grandmother's father and then his family, and they were fishing more on the the actual fish side of things as well. So they would um, be part of what was a surprisingly mobile fishing fleet, you know, that went right down to the Irish coast and you know they, they, they were quite mobile following the fish mackerel and herring around the around the Irish sea so one of the sort of treasures that my grandma had that I write about in the book is just a little kind of old china cup with a gift from Kinsale and that must have been brought back on one of those trips people wouldn't generally have traveled very much from the Isle of Man apart from the you know the, this amazing maritime connection where lots of people were either fishermen or worked on on boats and were actually going you know, going very far afield, you know, so it's a really interesting part of history, I suppose. The book that Fiona mentions here is called Spring Tides. It is a very personal account of marine life on the Isle of Man and her work there. And it's also about the unique perspective she's had on it, kind of as a marine conservationist, but also as a diver. When you dive over it, the whole seabed is just clicking and um jumping and and just there's there's creatures everywhere and um you could just hover above a kind of one meter square area of horse muscle reef and just you could look at it for you know two hours because it's so full of of life and and the um from a kind of food point of view, the horse mussel reef is really important nursery ground for, for whelks, which have become one of the top fisheries in, in the Isle of Man. I've got um, a, a little video clip from that dive, which I, I, I watch over and over again because it's just so beautiful. And it, um, yeah, it's, it's, and I've dived, you know, all over the world. I worked on coral reefs, I've worked on tropical seagrass beds, and I've been really lucky to have dived in lots of amazing places. But, but horse mussel reefs are just, they are just so magical. I could talk all day about horse mussel reefs. <laughs> <laughs> and through her work, 
Fiona's also had the opportunity to see fishing from a point of view that I guess not everyone gets access to. Like the experience of seeing a catch landed on a boat itself. Actually going out on a kind of a research vessel and seeing a big shoal of herring, you know, actually be be landed and how, even though it's obviously it's not great, it's the fish being caught and killed, but they were so beautiful. And it was, and that really made me understand why so many people had written and sung and, you know, that it was, that it, it did feel like a really magical experience to see that kind of, you know, waterfall of silver. And, it, you know, when you, and you saw that in the context of that being your food for the winter, you know, that, that combination of it looking magical, but also being so essential. I, I could see why there were so many stories about it, I suppose. There is a lot of songs based around the heron, because, I mean, obviously that was the, the big thing. That sort of... Yeah, there's also loads of, like, sayings related to herring as well, isn't there? Like, I saw one that was, like, no heron, no wedding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know about that And you one? never, ever, whatever you do, do not throw the bones of the fish into the fire. Oh. Because that would bring the bad luck onto you. The heron would feel it, and you'd get bad luck. But obviously, no heron, no wedding, you can't afford to eat. There's no heron, you can't afford to get married, because obviously you needed quite a lot of money to keep a wife. <laughs> also that thing about the Witch of Slawalian and the herring fleet. Yes, the fishing fleet were going out and it was a beautiful sunny day, everything was perfect and the tradition was they would bring water from the holy well to the wise woman as she stood on the breakwater and she would foretell the fortunes of the, the fleet. And this particular time she looked into the, the water and all she saw was disaster. And she absolutely panicked and she said, I s there's going to be a major storm blowing up, you are going to be wrecked, do, do not go, don't go anywhere near the f fish. But the uh, head of the, the fleet that year went, stupid woman, what do you know? Look at the day, it's beautiful, the wind's in the right quadrant, we're going. So they all went down shot their nets down by uh, Kittelan, down at the Sound. Everything looked perfect. And of course, then the wind switched direction, big storm blew up, and the fleet got wrecked. And uh, the poor woman, the wise woman, was clapped into irons and thrown into the crypt at Peel Castle. Uh, and then they took her, and they took her to the top of Slawalian, and every person who had lost a son, a father, husband drove a nail into the barrel that they forced her into, a herring barrel, and then they rolled her down the hill. And as it got to the bottom of the hill, it disappeared into a big bog and sank. And for years afterwards, there was actually a, tra a trail going all the way down where no grass would grow, where the barrel ran. It was always known as the Witch's Path. That's the hill next to my house. Uh, That's Llewellyn. That's so Llewellyn. Technically, the bog is basically where my house is now. <laughs> so I've stayed at your parents' house, Katie, and I have seen the hill that we're talking about here, the hill where allegedly the Witch of Slewellian was rolled down in a barrel. And like, I got to say, it's a spooky hill. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it is a spooky hill. It's hard to miss it. It looms over my house. My house truly is uh, yeah, where the where the, the bog, <laughs> where the natural endpoint for the barrel in the bog to end up is, and yeah, it is spooky. It has a certain stillness and quietness to it that is that is eerie. I would say mm. is the word, um, but at the same time, I do 
I don't know, that's the only house I've ever lived in on the island. I grew up in that house and have, you know, <laughs> I grew up in the bog, in the witch's bog. Uh, in many ways, you are the bog witch. <laughs> I am the bog witch. And I don't know, that kind of makes me feel like I've got a bit of a, an affinity to the witch. I mm. feel like when I walk, there's no streetlights or anything around there. And so at night, if I'm walking about, I just feel like, if anything were to happen, she would have my back. She's sort of watching. And it is creepy walking up through the trees. That's very tall, thin pine trees all the way up. The path is winding and you can get lost really easily. It's super steep. Um, but then when you get to the top, the tree's clear and there's a stone cairn up there. It's a beautiful view, but it is, it's creepy. And my brother, my brother did once claim that he found the remains of a satanic ritual up the hill, but I don't know wow. how far we can trust Sam Callan. <laughs> it's a great story, though. It's a yeah, it's a classic, classic Callan tale. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I love I love the Witch of Slawally, and I feel very attached to her. And I feel like you know, even though almost definitely it didn't happen, mm. because as we learned in the last episode of Blastel. There was only ever two murders of supposed witches on the island, which was in the south of the island. But I don't know. I just feel like the the essence of the witch is Swally and she floats about and she is a good egg. Yeah, I think there's always like with folk tales, there's always that they live in that grey area between fact and fiction and there might be something in it, but it also might be completely fabricated. Like I really enjoy that kind of like not being one or the other. But I think what is interesting about this story is that even if it's not true, um, or like, you know, even though it's not true, uh, it is quite representative of how fishing felt about superstition and how fishing felt about women. I mean, it's surprising any fish ever got caught because the fishermen were so superstitious. It was like, you weren't allowed to go out. The third boat was never to go out. So nobody wanted to go out as the third boat. So you'd have the first one go out, next two would tie together. So they didn't know which one was the third. It's the nineteen twenties that was still that was put in a newspaper report from Ramsey. There was still you didn't want to be the third boat out of the harbour. You didn't go out on a Sunday, obviously. There'd be a blessing of the fleet beforehand anyway, whereby the minister who would who was doing the blessing of the fleet would go from boat to boat blessing each boat individually, and on each boat you'd have a toss of whiskey. A friend of mine did that once, he was very drunk when he got back to church. <laughs> <laughs> if you were walking down to the boat in the morning and you passed either a pig, a vicar, a woman, any sort of light, small, brown, furry creature with a long tail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you didn't go out fishing that day. Wow. So I mean, this is probably why they went out early hours in the morning. So, <laughs> so you can't see any of these <laughs> you things. You can't see anything. <laughs> but yeah, and you certainly... And people still don't say R.A.T. now. Certainly not. People... Yeah, you have to say R-A-T or long tail. Long tail, Jaspers. So my dad's not a particularly superstitious person, but he came from that kind of, you know, fishing background where whenever you were out in the boat, you you mustn't say rabbit or sheep or talk about, you know, land animals. And I, I was the worst for forgetting and you know, getting really excited about seeing kind of, you know, a rabbit. Women weren't allowed on the boat. And just, no, 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 women were not allowed anywhere near the boats. It was too much like bad luck. I've never been refused <laughs> access to a boat. But there was a story that my uncle, he lives in Canada, and he came back, brought his partner and asked if 
my great uncle if that you know she could come out on the boat and he said even though she was you know they'd come away from Canada it was like a no because he didn't want a woman on the boat so there were, and that was in the sort of 60s the whistling which generally was a bad thing because you didn't want to whistle up the wind because you didn't want to you know it to get windier but then that could also be used when you know when with the sailing fleets when if they were becalmed that you could try and use that another thing I read about was you know that whistling could be summoning the Dunyamara, the the merman he could um, raise the wind or change the weather so that could be a bad thing it is it, it's a bit of a minefield I think if you can start, start accidentally breaking them all when you're you know on a boat <laughs> I have got a crush bone yes well I did have and I don't know where it is but somewhere in the house but the little bony fish thing like a cross actually as i'm talking i'm i've got my my cross ballon which is um the pharyngeal plate of a ras it's the grinding plate of a, a ballon ras and they eat things like you know small crabs and lobsters and things so they need to be able to grind these hard things i was given that by a fella from peel um years ago when i was i think i've been put in the guild to sing in manx by mona douglas about eight and i hadn't really sung and i wasn't really a singer but you just did it you were told because you're a bit scared to stand against Mona and say no. Anyway, I won because there weren't many people in it. So I was given this big, big fancy cup, which was, well, I was quite surprised, but pleased. And then um, some of the people who'd gone, because it was a competition for singing the Manx, some of the people who were involved in the Manx language movement at that time, and that would be in late 1960s, were sort of hanging around. I didn't really know who they all were, but um, they were sort of supporting the class as a thing. And this fella came up and gave me this thing. I said, I think this is for you to keep for luck and put it in, in the in the cup. And I thought, oh, right, okay. Well, I've got luck already. Uh, but don't get, this will stop you. Uh, um, I was a bit, I didn't really know what it was about. And it was, because it looked a bit like teeth. Well, it is sort of teeth. <laughs> I thought, oh, Mm, I don't particularly like this, but I don't know what to do with it. So for years, it was it, it was living in this cup until I had to hand the cup back because somebody was better than me, and it went into something else. And I don't know where it ended. I didn't. We knew I wouldn't want to throw it out because that would be asking for trouble. But my mum, you used to freak my mum out a little bit because yeah. you sort of. <laughs> so it's quite powerful. But um, I found I it was it was only eventually I started to ask people. What was the power of this? And it was to stop you drowning, um, presumably, because it comes from the sea. But as I didn't really want to cross, leave the island anyway at that point, it was, didn't seem relevant. I mean, I love the kind of stories around this because it was something that traditionally Manx fishermen would... I mean, this is a silver one, but Manx fishermen would have the kind of the actual little bony plate that they would carry around with them they're supposed to protect you from drowning which obviously as a you know a fisherman you would be very aware of the risk and you know there's so many stories of very big losses of life disasters and the herring fleet and so on but also from getting lost and and one of the things I really like is from making bad decisions so you know like all these things like this amazing thing if, you know if it really did all this it'd be brilliant I have to say I if I can't find it in the morning I kind of I'm a bit kind of like so that's that's my sort of science and, and superstition can you know <laughs> not necessarily correspond so there's a bit of a f kind of fishing related elephant in the room here that we haven't mentioned yet. And that is that despite the importance of herring in the history of the Isle of Man, as we've discussed, herring is not 
currently fished commercially by Manx fishing boats. And it actually, it hasn't been for a really long time. And there's a whole section of the House of Mananin that talks about this. But now the boats are bigger and they're just clearing out the Irish Sea. The fishing's just dying off altogether here. I won't deny that we've had poor years and we all suffer if it's a bad year for the hen. But my belief is that the sea will always be silver and Peel's fortunes will shine. It's an interesting thing because it's that's all to do with quota. So the way that fisheries were managed changed over the years. And there was um, work done, I think it was in the 70s, where where quota began to be allocated for different species. At that time, the Manx fishery was very much focused on the scallop fishery and shellfish more generally. And so no quota was taken on for the Isle of Man at that point. And then now it's very, very difficult to get quota. So it's become a kind of political and administrative issue rather than a kind of a fisheries management, you know, the more on the biology side of things. The herring that is caught in Manx waters is caught by, tends to be caught by a couple of really big Northern Irish vessels on quite an industrial scale because they've got the quota. And so the fisheries research on herring in Manx waters is done by the Northern Irish government as well. So it's all quite a kind of strange arrangement, but that's it's how it's been for, you know, historically. And then there's the biological side of things. So then that, and this is where the ICs, the International Council for, for the Exploration of the Sea, comes in and they issue advice each year based on the science that's done both in in Manx waters obviously and, and much more widely at the moment that they are advising against the taking of herring because of it herring is very variable naturally anyway but at the moment the trend is quite on a sort of downward trend anyway and that is interesting in itself because um, a lot of people assume that that will be because of overfishing and, and you know maybe bad fisheries management but one of the things that ICs have really emphasised about the Irish Sea stocks and, and more broadly around the Bashars is around the kind of the other impacts that that people have on the sea like there's an awful lot of marine development going on at the moment with things that we really need like offshore wind farms which we we know we really need to transition our energy systems away from fossil fuels but there's work that's done when you're surveying sites for offshore wind farms you have to use some level of seismic survey which is a lot of noise which can disturb fish and then one of the things i haven't mentioned is how important most fish just release their eggs into the the sea they're pelagic spawners but herring are what's known as demersal spawners so they lay their eggs in kind of ribbons onto the seabed either particularly on gravel and they like particular size of gravel or they can lay them on rock as well so but if that gravel is disturbed or it isn't in the right state you know it could even have been extracted or you know there's things like sand and gravel extraction then that will impact on you know the health of those those herring the herring will come back and spawn anyway but then the 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 eggs may not survive because they're not on the right kind of substrate so there's a lot of things we need to do to look after the sea to to make it conducive for the herring populations to be able to spawn successfully and then they're also very vulnerable to changes in sea temperature and things like that. So they're planktivorous, they eat plankton. So the young herring need to have the right plankton available to them. So you know, small changes in sea temperature could be having a big impact on you know, what's available and things like that. So, so it's actually a lot more complex than overfishing. It, there's lots of other impacts we're having on the ecosystem. Actually, since we spoke to Fiona, it's been reported by Manx News that the fishing industry on the Isle of Man is pressing UK authorities for permission to fish for herring again. 
The Manx Fish Producers Association says it's not about making money, but it's instead about allowing boats to diversify when they can't fish for scallops. And the aim is to get a quota allocation of 400 tonnes of herring. So, like we've discussed, it's very complicated, like lots of things going on, it's very nuanced, but it sounds like there's a chance that we could see herring being fished regularly by Manx boats again. Well, the herring section of the Manx English Dictionary is, you know, massive because of all the kind of herring-related vocabulary because, and I suppose, yeah, that was the thing that, you know, in for a long time, you know, the herring industry was so economically important. It's not surprising that it's become such a prevailing kind of theme through, you know, people's, what, what they were concerned about and because it was it was such an important source of living for so many people. I know you've got a little bit of a Manx library, Katie. I know you've got some dictionaries, <laughs> some phrase books, like... What references have you found that are herring related? So many. <laughs> Too many to even count. Um, but there were some good ones that I pulled out. Um, let me see. There was a good one that was an old Manx ballad. An old Manx ballad that goes, Of all the fishes in the sea, the herring is the king, and all the sellers of the grog rejoice when he comes in. Love that. Which is quite catchy. Yeah. Um, and there's also, there's like a million words for herring. Yeah, I mean, I, I was having a look in some of the dictionaries that you brought in and there's basically in the different dictionaries, there's somewhere between like 21 to 30 odd references to herring. We've got things like Krauskeden, herringbone, and I'm going to have to apologise for my, my horrendous Manx pronunciation. Yeah, I'd like to distance myself <laughs> from this. I also won't be correcting you. <laughs> I'm just going to let it happen. <laughs> Uh, Breutskeden, herring broth. Uh, what else have we got? Uh, Barty, skeden, herring vessel. Uh, skeden jerk, red herring. Shoal of herring. I love that there's a specific word for the shoal. That kind of, I feel like that really shows like how important it was. Uh, the word for shoal of herring is thamug. Just love the idea of, you know, fishermen standing on the side of a boat and shouting, thamug, thamug. Great. What else have we got? Have you found anything else? I liked... The smell of herrings has a special word, which is smoggin. Oh, I love that. I wonder if that's where the word smog comes from as well. Amazing. <laughs> so yeah. much is herring related and we have no idea. Exactly. It all, it all goes back to herring. Yeah, maybe we should end with this toast that I found, which, you know, if anyone wants to incorporate this into their next pub session, be my <laughs> guest. We will be. We obviously will be. This toast goes... Life to man and death to fish. Life to man and death to fish. Clink. Cheers! <laughs> Blastle is hosted and produced by Lucy Dearlove and Katie Callan. The series was supported by Culture Vannin. Thanks to everyone at Culture Vannin. We're so grateful to have this opportunity to explore Manx food and folklore in all its glory. Thank you also to Annie Kizik, Nikki Beavis at the House of Mananin, and Fiona Gell. Fiona's book Spring Tides is out now. If you found this episode interesting, you should absolutely read Fiona's book. It is fascinating. Uh, Katie and I both loved it. Our theme music was composed by Mira Royal. Additional music is courtesy of Manx Folk Dance Society and Kej Kuja. Vicky Webb did our series artwork and bespoke illustrations for each episode. You can find those on the Lekka Twitter and Instagram at Lekka Podcast. On the next episode of Blastle, Lockton. A beautiful recipe 
It's from uh, one of my mum's collection, and we are going to use Lockton. My seven curses on the little Lockton. I was twice round, but we will move after it. But I caught it for all. While you're stirring it, you can see the the fresh aromas of um, all the um, the garam masala and the chili, and the coriander brings a beautiful aroma at this stage. They are no, they are tasty. <laughs>